Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of DPH Clinical. I've got the clinical dream team. I got Dr. Dan Brisky and Dr. Tahir Dune on. What's going on, guys? What's up, Not much, man. Just having a good day. All right. So we're going to jump into another clinical topic. And yeah, if there's something you listeners want to hear, please email it to us, dentalpracticeheroes at gmail.com, and we'll do a topic on it if this is something that they feel comfortable talking about, which I would be surprised if there's anything clinical you don't feel comfortable talking about. Is there? No, I think we got everyone covered on almost every aspect of dentistry these days. What about Botox? Oh, yeah, we do Botox. Look at my wrinkly forehead. I need some too. (laughs) You inject it on yourself. I do actually. Yeah. It's hard to do like, it's hard to do like the globular area. I have my assistant watch like the lines, like tell me when to stop, tell me when to stop because it's too close to my eyes. I can't see. (laughs) It takes some getting used to like doing it on yourself because you know it's going to hurt. Anyway, I don't want to talk about Botox. Let's, let's, I thought I would stump you with like, eh, we don't do Botox. All right, today we're talking about surgical overdentures. You want to bring us into this, Brisky? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. So I think um, a very important topic to start with here is just full art surgery in general and where you go with the treatment planning portion. Because there's a lot to it when you're starting off even a two-unit overdenture or three-unit or four-unit or something that's upgradable, right? From something that's snapping to something that's fixed all the way to something that is fixed. And if you're doing four implants or six implants or where you're going. So I think the treatment planning aspect of how you get there, it is actually all the same. So we'd love to start the topic of full art surgery in general, specifically talking about overdentures first, and then how we treatment plan them and how we get to the end result. So when we're doing a lot of full art surgery, and when I say full art surgery, I just mean anything, right, that doesn't have teeth in it anymore, right? Take the teeth out and it's time to put some implants in. I think at that point, the surgical level of skills does go up. So it is also important to remember the importance of a lot of different advanced techniques of surgery, such as vertical sinus lifts, right? Uh, Maybe a bone block. Do I know my GBR skills? Are they up to date enough to if I run into an implant failure, can I get myself out of trouble? Can I do a lateral sinus lift? So all of these little parts are definitely very important because none of us want to be the guy practicing who is only referring to, for help. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah, that's a big thing. And I think my part of Dr. Dunes and myself's journey was the journey of how do we stop referring procedures and how do we become GPs that don't refer and we don't ask for help anymore. Yeah. And I think learning these skills too is something that every dentist should do because I think it just makes you such a well-rounded, it just makes you a better treatment planner. I think you get people get pigeonholed and it's like, if a dentist doesn't know how to place implants, you're more likely to recommend a bridge, even if it's not the best thing for the patient. So when you can offer all these different modalities and you can offer them in office, and one thing I'll say that I noticed from, I do not do all on four, I do not place full arch implants or anything like that. I'll just clarify that. But when we added an in-house specialist that could do it in our office, we started getting a lot more people saying yes. And I don't think there's anything persuasive about it that makes it better. It's just people want to stay at one office. So if you can add this to your toolbox, I think it's an amazing thing for your patients. Yeah, we always say during the consults uh, to the patient, hey, are you tired of going on a tour of your city trying to locate what in the world to do, right? And that's exactly what they feel. They feel like they're going on a tour, driving to this office, this office, this office, and at the end of the day, they just get so confused and they don't really know what to do, or then they just give up. Yeah. Yeah, and if you think about it from a financial perspective, most people are financing these cases. 
And if they go see the surgeon and then they have to see you prosthetically, they got to do two different payment plans with two different monthlies. And then it becomes cost prohibitive for a lot of people to double down on the monthly like that. Yeah, that's true. I never thought about it that way. That's a good point. All right. So let's, let's, let's get into it. Let's get into the nitty gritty. So when a patient loses their teeth, they become edentulated. I think one of the, some very, very important principles to start with, one is to bone graft anything that's being extracted. All right. That's going to save you some big headaches down the road when you end up with 30% or 40% of bone loss in the area that you extracted the teeth and you get down the road and you're like, oh my God, now I have no other spots for the patient that wants more than two implants, right? Because they will. No one likes a two implant supported overdenture because it just pops up when you bite in the back <laughs> or it pops up when you bite in the front. So you need more implants. So importance of remembering to bone graft everything is very important. And then also keeping in mind a lot about prosthetic space. For example, zirconia. Um, nowadays, direct unit only needs 10 to 12 millimeters. And overdentures, even with a metal mesh, only needs about 8 millimeters. So when you're playing them and you're taking the teeth out, well, before you take the teeth out, it's important to get some measurements. Buying something like a, a VDO gauge. A VDO gauge just measures, I think it's the middle of the eye to the corner of the lip, and then the bottom of the nose to the bottom of the chin. And it's just based on golden proportions. It just says that 98% of people are proportionate, right? Except for that, you know, the dude in the Goonies movie that he might not So, you know, obviously when you're here looking at people, just make a generalized look and say, you know, maybe this person's proportionate or maybe they're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's worth some clarification, the prosthetic space, because if you don't plan for this prosthetic space, you end up with a very gummy smile or teeth that are not where you want them to be placed. They're more yeah. incisal, I guess, would be a better way of describing it. But yeah, I have a case like that that came to me. That was an overdenture case, and it was like to get it to look right, we just didn't have any space for any of the, the, yeah. the attachments or anything. And it's like, no, it's like, well, what can we do? There's really not a whole lot we can do. It's the number one mistake we see. And I've been victim to it earlier on in my career as well. And then also, if you think about like the protrusion, if you're planning an overdenture and their lip support from the max, maxillary bone is already like excessive, and then you put more acrylic in there, that, I mean, their lip is going to be out to the parking lot and there's yeah. nothing you can do to thin out the acrylic. And then on the flip end or the, the other side of that, if you're doing full arch and they're completely, you know, their maxilla is deficient, they're atrophic, they have no lip support, you may want to consider and, and leave the door open for an overdenture conversation because if you give them a, a fixed prosthetic and there's no flange to support the vestibule and the facial structures, I mean, they're still going to look sunken in even with the full arch prosthetic. So you have to make sure you're looking at all these things all the time and talking about it at the consultation so that you're not surprising the patient with any of these adverse outcomes. So I want everyone to kind of picture this right now. Like if you're driving, picture a immediate denture that you gave someone and then picture how small the teeth are on the immediate denture. And then you granted the teeth away, right? Because you don't know how much you can open or close the patient. Then you're left with this denture that has flat teeth, <laughs> is very thin, and you're thinking to yourself, oh man, like I don't have any space. Like what, what did I do wrong, right? And it literally comes down to the fact that in the beginning of the visit, if you can figure out where the patient's VDO is originally and keep track of it, because what we do is every patient that we do records for full arch, full arch, even if, even if you're just taking teeth out, do a denture, we take a VDO measurement and we put that in the chart. And what our goal is, is to replicate that at the end of the visit. So if the patient loses their video, well, we know where they began. And you can get back to it 
And then now all of a sudden, when you're taking your new byte registrations, what you can do is at the very end of your immediate dentures that you make, you stick a leaf gauge in and that leaf gauge is going to open the patient to the beginning video that you just had. And that's the new video you're going to go off of. But even something simple as that, I didn't even learn that until a few years ago, right? Because there's those, like these little secrets that you could really help yourself stay out of trouble. Right, and using the leaf gauge also helps to put it in CR, correct? Correct. Yeah, and a poor man's way to evaluate CR is if you have the patient put the tongue or their tongue to the roof of their mouth and move it as far back as they can and close slowly, and then they hit that first interference point if teeth are present, that also kind of will help you simulate and kind of get an idea of where those interferences are. Interesting. Cool. So yeah, hopping into like surgical, I mean, in previous ones, we talked about medical history, looking for the bisphosphonates, SSRIs, all of that stuff. If you want like a little bit more in depth on medical history stuff, you know, we can do a separate podcast on it or just reference the, the podcast we recorded before. But let's say they're a healthy patient, you choose to take on the case, you're ready to go, you plan out all your reduction, time to get some pre-records and have your immediate denture ready. But I'm always planning for two dentures and the patient knows they're paying for a second set of dentures. And it's already pre-financed for the second set of dentures. And they have no option besides getting a second set of dentures because I've run into the problem of, oh, you're charging me more later down the road. Mm -hmm. And it's not a conversation you want to have. So all of that's ready to go. Some people like the clear acrylic for their reduction when you're doing your extractions and bone reduction. I don't use that anymore. Uh, Brisky, what's your thoughts on some of the clear acrylic duplicated dentures for overdentures? For overdentures, I think it and help in the beginning, for sure, right? Because it's hard to tell what is actually parallel. Yeah, and I've done that like 20, 30 times. And what you do is you basically trough out the overdenture that's in clear acrylic and you leave all the teeth present. So when you place your implants or you you know place your direction indicators, your whatever your, your paralleling pins are, you put that in and you make sure you're not coming through the facial, you're not coming through lingual, You'll have adequate thickness of your acrylics. So you're not going to have acrylic fracturing. You have a place for your metal framework. And then also you can be parallel and have your implants in a nice spread too. And when I'm planning it out, I'm always, like Dr. Brisky talked about, looking for rescuing your case later down the road in the event of a failure. I'm always trying to plan it out where I can either go mesial or distal to any site if one of those implants fails. And I'm strategically trying to place my implants that leaves the door open for a revisitation. So I don't have to take the patient out of a, a fixed or implant retained case and move them to a denture for six months while I graft and then replace the implant. So I'm always leaving the door open for an immediate fix. So in the beginning, kind of like when we're just taking pictures, I think there's generally just three different types of cases. There's a low resting lip line, right? Which is like a slam dunk. It's easier to reduce bone to get the prosthetic space you need, the high transition lines. Then you have a patient where you're looking at them and their number eight and nine are like right in the middle. They're like, boom. You're like, all you do is look at number eight and nine. You're like, man, those teeth are in the perfect position, right? That's a really good case to decide if you want to try one on like an FP1 or an FP2 type of prosthetic without any pink gums on it. But I also want to point out most of the time FP3s are still the way to go. I don't shame anyone for reducing bone to give the patient a nice prosthetic. I know there's a lot of shaming going on these days for saying, hey, you're reducing a little bone, shame on you. You should be doing FP1 and having a $10,000 lab bill associated with your with your X case. Uh, we're not going to shame you. <laughs> what is an FP1, FP3, yes. M1, 2, and 3? Can you just briefly, quickly talk about what that is? FP1 
is basically crown and bridge implant work. If you lose a tooth, you put an implant in. And for the most part, you're going to go either directly to the implant, like a typical implant restoration, or you can put a multi-unit on and just raise the prosthetic platform up a little bit. And it still looks the same. So it just looks implant bridge, tooth only, no pink porcelain. Then we'll talk about FP3. FP3 is where you're replacing the gum tissue and the teeth. So that's that bigger you know, piece of zirconia that has about 12 to 15 millimeters of height to it that you can see teeth and gums and all the sculpting and everything. FP2 is in the middle, to say the best. Usually it looks like an elongated tooth. It looks a little bit funny looking. So sometimes when you're planning a case and the patient just doesn't have the funds to do a really nice FP1, I tell them, hey, you know, you're going to smile and it's going to look absolutely perfect because we know exactly where your transition line is. But if you pull it back and you try to show Aunt Linda down the street about your 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 lip, it may look slightly funny. So just don't do that. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Another type of case would be a vertical maxillary excess case. So a case where there's just way too much bone. And your options kind of decrease a little bit because you do have to remove that excess. But a key thing to remember is you have to plan out how much bone you have to reduce. There are some cases where if you reduce too much bone, you may not actually have enough left from the distance from the nose to where you're putting the implant. So I think a really good rule of thumb, at least for me, is I will never reduce something more than what it will take for the, the maxilla where there's 10 millimeters left from the base of the nose to the top of the implant. Anything less, you're just trying to sneak in small implants. And at that point, you should really think about treatment planning, maybe an overdenture uh, instead of a fixed permanent option. That's a good point because I think a lot of people, they more treatment plan based on the financials of the patient rather than the actual prosthetic. That's, I like that you said that. Yeah, and I've done it that way for years. And literally, those are cases that haunt you for two to three years afterwards when you let finances dictate the case. I'm almost more inclined to reduce the cost for the better option just because I know I'm going to save on the back end in terms of staff wages, headaches, stomach lining, all of the above. Also, when a patient is a dentalist, plan on those implants not having a whole lot of stability if you're doing any reduction because when you reduce the, the crest of the ridge, that's the cortical bone that you're going to get stability on the, you know, the top of the implant. Well, if you do your reduction, it's all in that medullary trabecular bone. And so edentulous patients, they typically have, you know, like D3, D4. It's like balsa wood or styrofoam. And when you drop those implants in, what I do is I'll take the drill and I'll just put pressure directly into the drill. And if it sinks in without even running the rheostat, like, you know, running the, the motor, then I'm just pushing drills. And it's basically mm-hmm. condensing the bone appropriately. And I'm, I'm dropping the implants in and I'm undersizing the osteotomy by a lot. Yeah. So let's go through kind of like a, some overdenture stuff now. Hey, Paul, you want to hear a joke? Yeah. In mini implants. <laughs> <laughs> that's the joke, Paul. Oh, that's a, that was, I, was, I was waiting for like a question answer. Yeah. yeah. We have implants, we right, mini narrow diameter implants, you can call them. Something that's like less than three millimeters wide. They come out very easily. So if you ever want to take out an, a mini implant, you just put a standard torque wrench and you just literally twist it out. That's how easy they are to get. Yeah, out. it's impressive. Like I mean, I took some out on on my wife's uncle to go to like normal, regular, conventional size implants. Yep. And I was like, man, this is integrated. I don't know. Like we went to treffing it out, and I'm like, I'm just gonna see if it'll just unscrew. And yeah, out <laughs> yeah. of <laughs> it wasn't that hard. It just comes right out. It's crazy. 
So Dune and I, we don't use narrow diameter implants, right? We would use a maybe three millimeter for a single tooth, obviously, right? Everyone would do that. But we aren't the biggest believers, to say the least, in really, really small implants. They do tend to fail over time. They don't last very long. They're more of a temporary solution. So really the smallest diameter implant that we recommend is a 3.5 millimeter implant. So you could go kind of just even thinking back to back to the Mish days, right? Where Mish has a sex book and he says, there's two implants, three implants, four implants, right? And then he draws a diagram exactly where he wants to put those implants. And it's important to remember too, is if you place two implants, you also have to remember later down the road, well, what if the patient wants four? Where am I going to put those other two? I just did a case last week where the two implants were actually right at the first premolar. And she came in, she said, Doc, I can't wear it at all because she bite in the front and pop out, bite in the back popped out. Like obviously, right? It's literally in the middle. So the fulcrum is in the middle of the ridge. So I placed two implants behind it and two in front of those. And I didn't even use the other two implants <laughs> because they didn't actually have any value to them. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. You know, plus two, I, we don't really want six implants. It's kind of a lot. And doing that many implants, the acrylic is smaller between each of the implants. So it's easier to get a fracture through the denture or uh, between the implant parts. Touch on that from a treatment planning perspective. If you treatment plan you know, two, three, and four, oftentimes they'll pick three because people will pick you know, the middle option. But if they pick two... What I do as a sign of goodwill is like, I'll do the third one because it, it literally takes five extra minutes to add the third one. And, you know, maybe my cost goes up by 400 bucks. But I was like, look, I'll do the, I'll do that third one for free because I know how bad two is. And I know what this is going to look like into the future. And my job is to also manage your future expectations because I do this all the time. And all I ask for you is that you leave me some really awesome testimonials and reviews and stuff like that when you're happy with it. And then I start building my marketing campaign off the goodwill you get from an extra 400 bucks in five minutes. Yeah, I love that. So That's true, because that third implant will be way less expensive than you making a bar because your patient's upset with you for yeah. making them this denture that you promised them the world with. So we don't really ever do two implants. Three is really the minimum. And just exactly like Dr. June said, we let them know, like, hey, you know, like, we're doing you a solid here to give you that third one because this is going to increase the quality of your life like substantially. Oh, real quick point. Don't put the implant right in between 24 and 25. <laughs> that insertion of the, the you know, lingual artery goes in there. You hit that thing, you'll see the floor of the mouth swell up. It'll spurt like a fountain. So offset it to either 24 or 25. No, it's just never down the, the center. Have you ever done that to here? <laughs> I've been close and I saw a little geyser come up. And if what you do is what you, what you do in that situation, you put your direction indicator pin in there and it usually will kind of slow it down or place your implant super quick because you're basically plugging the hole and then just watch the floor of the mouth for any type of elevation. And you can even stick your finger on the lingual of 24 and 25 and compress really hard because with anastomosis and stuff, remember that crap from dental school? Right, you compress one one set of arteries and veins and, and vasculature on one side. The body will kind of compensate and clot off that area more quickly. Gosh, I was thinking, just run, just get out of there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like a dine and dash, right? <laughs> run. So let's say we're placing four implants. Right, ideal location is going to be two in the canine, two in the molar. Right, but what if you have a case where there is no molar space to do implants? then you're kind of forced to put four implants between the mental nerves, which I would advise to be careful because if you squeeze four implants, especially straight implants, they're going to be right next to each other, right? Right on top of each other. And again, that's where you can break your prosthetic. 
So what we'll do in those cases is we'll angle our back two implants, kind of like we're doing an all-on four, and we'll do it so that the patient could even upgrade later. But the goal is to get the implants further away from each other and increase the spread. So we'll place implants like an all-on four right over the mental nerve and two in the middle where the laterals are. And then we're going to put angled multi, either the angled overdenture snaps, and there's a couple different brands that sell them. One option would be getting a multi-unit to correct the angle. And then Zest actually sells a snap, one that screws into the multi-unit so you can transition into a locator case. Another option is Neodent. Obviously, we're big fans of Neodent. They have an angled locator already. It's 15 degrees, so you can actually just put it right into the implant, and that will correct for your angle. But the biggest thing is, yeah, just try to not sneak four, cramp them all in the middle there, because if the patient ever does want to upgrade to an all-on-four, what you just did was you took the bone away. And how are they going to upgrade to an all-four now or fixed prosthetic because you just you took all the bone? And so let's assume, you know, all the implants are placed because I want to make sure, and, and for all the listeners, we're going to touch on the prosthetic end of all of this on, on a future episode. But from an implant placement perspective, once it's all placed and you deliver an immediate denture, you have to be very cognizant about if you put healing abutments on, that the denture isn't rocking into your healing abutments while they're integrating because that's going to cause failure. Make sure the patient's not using fixident. Obviously, I've had someone do that. But you can take your immediate denture and hollow it out where it's like six millimeters of space around your healing abutments and give like a really, really like wide amount of space. Or sometimes a recommendation, I think Dr. Brisky might you know agree with this, is just put cover screws on and put your implant subcrestal a millimeter or two so there's no way that denture can rock and torque on your implant while they're integrating. And what kind of things can we do so that the immediate denture, in these cases where we have to do some alveoplasty and some reduction, in my experience, and I just wonder what you guys say this, is that these dentures, they don't fit. Like, they suck. And it's like, the more alveoplasty you do, the, the less it fits. So what kind of things, are there any recommendations for that? We actually tell our patients that, like verbatim. And what Dr. Du and I will do is we usually give them a, a discount if they don't want an immediate denture for oh. lower. So a lot of time I'll give them immediate denture for the top and I tell them, you're going to be so sore that you're not going to wear the lower and I don't think it's really going to fit. So I say, how would you like a discount instead? And then we'll give you a couple hundred dollars off and you don't have to mess around with it. And most Great of them idea. are like, oh, like, I'm surprised that was even an option to save more money. Right, but you don't have to give the patient an over like immediate denture. You know, it's not part of the rule book. I otherwise thought it was. I was like, oh, you have to give the patient a, a denture because I took the teeth out. Like, well, you don't. You could just let them heal, and they're gonna be way happier because you're not gonna have to do a thousand relines and uh, denture adjustments. That is some out of the box thinking right there. Yeah, then you waste all your money on the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so let's say you end up giving them the denture, right? soft liner inside. And we tell them like, look, this is a nightstand ornament. You're maybe going to wear it out when you're with your friends, but this thing you're not going to wear, you're not going to like it. It's going to suck. It's the worst thing we do in dentistry. And it's even worse when it's post-surgical and you actually heal better if you don't wear it. And we scare the crap out of them, but sometimes we'll give it to them regardless upon request. And then we soft line it when they're healed up enough. Sometimes it fits just nicely too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes. (laughs) So, I mean, I think that kind of wraps up the overdenture component. I mean, we teach a whole course on this. And so to try to get it into half an hour is, is sometimes difficult and, and there's nuances to it. But that's kind of like the Cliff Notes version of it. 
Paul, do you think we touched on everything that we needed to cover? You know, one thing that I wanted to ask that I don't think you guys did touch on is you mentioned how many implants on the lower, how many on the upper for a typical overdenture? What's your minimum? What's your max? I like placing five implants in like a pretty good spread on them because we all know that bone in the maxilla is softer. It is. And when you're placing implants on the maxilla, you need to place some nice sturdy implants. You know, most of the time we're not placing eights. We're placing, you know, 11 and a half, 13 millimeter implants because yes, the torque on with the bone and on the implant, you could end up with some bone loss down the road. So if you're placing shorter implants or you're placing only four, right? I would still advise making a bar. It is a really good idea. But if you can get some really nice implants in there, right? Some 11s or 13s and get some good stability, I still will give them a roundhouse without the pallet and it will snap right into them. All right. Well, that's about it. Let's talk about uh, Colorado Surgical Institute and what you guys offer and, and the offer you have for the listeners. Yeah. So we run the full arch courses. We also have you know a postgraduate clinical accelerator course I, I won't touch on, but you know, it's all live patient. It's all done in Northern Colorado. And, and they're all patients of our practice. So, you know, the follow-up is those patients are going to get taken care of, you know, unlike, you know, if you go to a third world country where you don't really know the follow-up. So just reach out to us. You can actually text HERO to 970-546-7766. Just text HERO to that number and we will actually send you part of the curriculum that's the playbook on how to do some of these surgical procedures into your practice. But we're also going to raffle off a $4,000 observational ticket to every full arch course to all the listeners of this podcast. And so you can actually come in and we do 18 arches in the weekend and you are going to get immersed within the surgical space and you're going to see a lot of cool stuff. So yeah, reach out to us at Colorado Surgical Institute. You know, we're here to get anyone from, from A to Z and whatever implant journey or surgical journey that they have. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time today, guys. And listeners, please reach out to Tahir and Brisky. And I know their uh, clinical stuff. I mean, if you're feeling like you are clinically inadequate listening to them, I feel it too. So I will just be vulnerable <laughs> in, that, in that regard. But thanks so much, guys. Yeah, thanks, man. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Dune from Colorado Surgical Institute. Just wanted to give you guys a shout out and let you know about the program. We have full arch surgeries. We have lateral sinus lifts. We have block grafting courses all done in one weekend with the whole digital workflow with photogametry units, scanners, 3D printers, milling, you name it, anything regarded to full arch, we cover in depth. We also have a PGCA course. What that is, it's the Postgraduate Clinical Accelerator course where we are going to be covering wisdom teeth, single implants, and it can be complex single implants with vertical sinus lifts. We'll also be covering full arch extractions with ridge reduction, bone grafting, PRP, suturing, and we also will have a course on socket preservation. So if you guys are interested in any of those courses, please reach out to us at Colorado Surgical Institute. The code is HERO10 for 10% off our courses because we love Paul Etchison and his podcast, and we're here to help.